Welcome to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast, where we share the latest information and views from industry leaders. Hello, this is Diane Estabrook from McKnight's Home Care Daily. Geriatrician Edie Columbia joined CVS Health a few months ago as Chief Medical Officer for Aetna Medicaid. One of the things she'll be focused on is keeping seniors who are eligible for both Medicaid and Medicare healthy. We started our conversation talking about the challenge of delivering home-based services at a time when Medicaid reimbursement rates remain very low. I think we're always in a situation of trying to make sure that we are advocating for our members in what services are needed. And I think you're you're correct. Home and community-based services are one of the more important ways to keep patients healthy and, and keep them in the home as long as possible in the least restrictive setting. And so, you know, when we do look at cost efficiency across the board, certainly it is a, you know, it is a cost efficient way to take care of a member, not only the correct thing to do and the right thing to do for a member, but also much more cost efficient than an inpatient hospital stay. And so I think as a managed care organization, we are always partnering with our states to look at those reimbursement rates and to make sure that we're trying to support our provider network as well as possible in order to be able for them to continue to provide those kinds of critical services. Gotcha. Aetna Medicaid covers those people who are considered dual eligible. So they qualify for both Medicare and Medicaid. And we know that these people are very complex patients. What sort of barriers or what sort of obstacles do they present or are there obstacles to care for these people? Uh, it's, a, it's a great question. You're absolutely right. We do have uh, dual eligible members, those that receive both Medicare and Medicaid. And yes, they are some of the most vulnerable members that we have within our books of business. And many times because they're eligible for those services because they have a severe disability or something that makes them eligible for um, Medicare, but on top of that, concomitantly have some type of social determinant issue or a financial um, situation that makes them eligible for Medicare. And so, again, I think, you you know, you touched upon, you know, what are the barriers, which really there are so many food insecurities, um, housing instability in many cases. Oftentimes we see um, social isolation in these members, everything from an unmet dental need to a behavioral health need, which may not be met. Um, we see in some of these populations, um, you know, in this population almost 40% of the members um, have some type of behavioral health need that they've been met or unmet. And so, of course, those create great barriers to, to receiving services as folks may or may not be comfortable within providers' offices. And oftentimes, will utilize emergency room services or other services rather than being comfortable going into a PCP or, you know, or their primary care doc. They may not have that relationship. And that is something that we we face those challenges every day and our care managers work on every day to create that robust relationship between our members and primary care offices because we know that's the place in which they will have a safe home, um, whether it's a behavioral health home combined with a medical home or a medical home working in conjunction with a behavioral health home when needed. So again, you know, we do often see though that that is a barrier. When we think about these, you know, the way in which they access care, that in and of itself can become a barrier. And then, of course, you know, when you are concerned about your financial situation and other things going on in your life and these other instabilities, um, sometimes healthcare becomes the least priority. And that is very difficult. 
Good point. You unpacked a couple of things there that I just wanted to talk about. You talked about um, these people utilizing emergency rooms more. You also talked about social determinants of health, things like food insecurity, social isolation and loneliness. How are you able to address that? Can you get your arms around that through your Medicaid Advantage plans? It's a really great question. I mean, I think the best way that we really can wrap our arms around it is from the intake on forward. And so when we first are meeting a member, we have the ability to what we um, perform what we call an HRA or a health risk assessment. And we're sitting down with a member and we're talking about, and sometimes that's sitting down in person and sometimes it's virtual, but we're talking about all of those barriers to care. And that starts the initial relationship off when we have that ability to really ascertain what is it that's preventing them from getting to their best state of health. And so I I believe that that's really kind of our touch point one. And then, you know, a very unique care management program is built for that member that takes into consideration that those specific needs, because, you know, what you might need or what I might need may be very different. And so we want to acknowledge those differences and get to the actual member's goals. Because again, this is very, you know, it's very important to understand what are, what is it that they want to achieve? What do they think is most important to them? I've often said in speaking with care managers, if you can get to that win-win, something that's meaningful and important to that particular member, oftentimes you can build that very long relationship. We do have many of our care managers have had the same member for prolonged periods of time. And it starts to develop that trust where that care manager can really help them navigate what can be a very complex healthcare system, we all know. We've seen very rapid expansion of Medicare Advantage plans. They make up about 45% of all Medicare plans out there. It's going to go up to 50, more than 50% within the next few years. But at the same time, some of these plans have been criticized um, by the Office of Inspector General, for instance. How do you ensure that patients that are in these plans are getting the care that they need, but at the same time containing costs? It's a really great question. I mean, I think it's really for us a two-pronged approach. So, um, you know, we talked a little bit about the care management and if I could double down on that, I think that's the most important part of this because until you understand what the member's needs are, until you really kind of have an understanding again to what the barriers were to getting to their optimal health, um, you don't really have the ability to to give them exactly what is needed to help them to achieve that. And so that care management piece where it's very individual, oftentimes, for instance, with our long-term care supports and services, it's 100% face-to-face where you're going into the home, you're looking at where the handrails are or what they need as far as, you know, some of the supports for their activities of daily living. And you're in there and you're really kind of getting to know the member in that way. I think that that really, again, out of the two prongs of the approach, that really becomes the most important because the second prong, which is what we call our utilization management, really only relies upon the first prong. So in other words, in order to get those correct services as members are requesting and providers are requesting certain services, we really have to understand what the members' holistic needs are. But our UM approach, I think, you know, it's is a very sound one, is based upon, of course, the Medicare coverage. And that's really the underlying coverage rules are strictly adhered to. And obviously we're governed by not just CMS in the audit process, but also um, our state because these are dual eligible members and um, in our case, NCQA or, you know, our, our quality. 
assurance. And so in that three governing process, what they make sure is, again, that initially we're looking at that Medicare coverage rules. Where Medicare is silent, which is does occur in some cases, we then use what are considered to be industry standard guidelines, such as minimum care guidelines. And in some cases, there are not and, you know, Medicare may be silent. There may not be a minimum care guideline. And then we have to institute a policy, which those policies are, are given to CMS and our audits and are fully approved. And so our physicians and our nursing teams and our other clinicians that are reviewing these care for these care determinations go through kind of that what we call a hierarchy review of looking at all of those different layers and saying okay well is this a covered benefit if it is a covered benefit is this the right benefit for the member is there something that would be better for the member and so should this member if they're not in care management today be referred to care management especially here at Aetna the CM team and the UM team are working in lockstep. So that care management team and that UM review team are working together to make sure, hey, is this the correct thing for this member? And so I I believe that when we look at it that way in a more kind of a holistic approach, putting the member at the center and just saying, here's what the member actually needs, I, I think that that kind of gives us a much better view. And again, puts the right services in the right place. And it seems like we're seeing more of that now. If you take a look at CVS Healthcare, Aetna, you've got the pharmacy component of it. Um, It seems like healthcare is moving in a more holistic, all-encompassing direction. Is that what you see as the future of healthcare? Well, it it is a very exciting time to be at CVS and Aetna together because, um, of course, the possibilities become um, really, uh, you know, in- incredible when you think about what we could do in partnership with our providers, with our CVS stores, with our minute clinics, uh, being a provider in our minute clinics. It's a very exciting time because not only are we the insurer, but in, in the cases of the minute clinics, we're actually providing care, as you know, um, you know, giving vaccines and, you know, in our recent pandemic, really had the opportunity to interact with so many of our members in our vaccine campaigns. I see the future as healthcare is really holding hands. Is first we kind of saw, you know, um, practices and smaller practices absorbed by hospital systems and hospital systems working more closely with larger provider communities and insurers. And I think now we're realizing that it's the old saying it takes a village, that it really does take a village. And that unless we're all locking hands, you know, in my space in Medicaid, we work very closely with community-based organizations. There's so many wonderful organizations organizations out there that provide fantastic services for our member. And there's no need for us to duplicate a service when we can have a terrific partnership with something that's very local and is, you know, is meeting that need in a way that is very meaningful for the member, whether it's faith-based organizations or, you know, or these community-based organizations. And so, you know, I guess, uh, you know, what I see as the real evolution is all of these factors working hand in hand. And again, being at CVS Aetna, it's kind of an exciting space because we have so many elements within our own umbrella. And so uh, we ourselves are working hand in hand in some of our care management programs and getting out there in unique ways for the member and really meeting the members where they are, because some members are more comfortable walking down to that CVS and speaking to their pharmacist. This is great 
wonderful, rich resource and oftentimes was underutilized in the past. And so we're doing a lot around, you know, what can we do to make sure that our pharmacists are practicing to the top of their license and enjoying those wonderful relationships that they have with with our patients. And you're a geriatrician. (laughs) You you talked recently or just a couple minutes ago about meeting people where they want to be seen. And, and a lot of people want to be seen at home. Yes. As a geriatrician, were you able to go into the home and treat patients? It seems like we're in a phenomenon now where years ago, doctors made house calls, then they didn't do it for a while. Now they're getting back to it. What was your experience as a geriatrician? You know, it's funny you should say that because you're correct. I mean, in the 1930s, 40% of encounters actually occurred at the home. And now, unfortunately, he's a dip down to less than 1%. And I think now we're seeing a resurgence of this. Personally, in my own practice, we did have a home visit program. I made house calls. It was a great, great privilege to be able to do that. I used to say to my residents that would work with me, I'd say, you know, you learn more in a half an hour in the patient's home than you could in 40 visits in the office with them. Because just to see their surroundings, to see what's in the refrigerator as they direct you there to tell, you know, um, you know, to see what the what the bathroom looks like. How is it set up? Are they are they a risk for slipping and falling? All of those things that you can glean from a half an hour in someone's home setting that you really can't in any other way. And so that's why I say, I think some of the most wonderful work that we do is in that long-term care supports and services realm, when we're partnering with our providers and our vendors to supply those services within the home. And our care managers are going out there face-to-face just to see what those needs are and what that really looks like. Again, you know, as a geriatrician, it was some of my favorite times is going into those patients' homes and, and really developing a relationship that when you sit across the table from them, you see is, you know, something that's astounding. I, I do remember one time I went into a home and there was a, um, a big dish with multiple pills put in it. And the patient said to me, oh, that's how I take my meds. I pour them all into the same dish and then I just take out a couple a day. And I was like, oh my goodness. So here we thought we were doing this wonderful med reconciliation and we thought, oh my gosh, they really understand why they're taking these different things. And you know, no, it was collapsing in the home, it just wasn't working. And so we put some things in place that changed that. And I think this is how we learn that. It's amazing when people come to an office, they're kind of ready to present things a little bit differently, right? Oh, of course I know, Doc, what I need to do. But when you get out there, it, it is sometimes a very different situation. And so that's why I'm so glad that our teams here at Aetna have that opportunity to see them in the home. And we also are continuously kind of building out our capabilities in telehealth because we know, you know, our seniors are often, you know, quite tech savvy or they have children that are tech savvy and they don't want to go out to the dermatologist when they can show the rash on the screen and, and receive a treatment that will kind of, again, mitigate a further need and not take them out of the home to be able to do that. Because oftentimes it can be very jarring. I mean, especially in our patients with some sorts of dementia and, you know, and Alzheimer's, very jarring for them to leave the home for any reason. We've seen a lot of supplemental benefits moving into the homes, things like handyman services and transportation and meals, home care, obviously. What are other services that you think might be beneficial to this cohort that's staying in their homes, aging in place? 
Yeah, I think you, you touched upon a lot of the most important ones. I think those are those are really um, probably some of the, the core tenants. I do think um, also when we think about planning and senior planning ahead of time, having the planning services and hospice and palliative medicine when that's something that's important, home pharmacy and infusions, keeping people at home, perhaps an IV antibiotic needed, but you don't need to be in a hospital to have an IV antibiotic. We, you know, as I say, we say, you know, the hospital is no place to be when you're sick. I mean that with all due respect to our hospital partners, but, you know, um, jokingly, a lot of seniors kind of feel that way if it can be done in the home and safely and efficiently. We certainly would want to support and respect um, that patient's wishes and do it in the most efficient way. I think that home infusions are were a big, big advance. I also think, again, getting people involved early um, in companion care and some of those activities of daily living support can often prevent a hospitalization. I mean, you know, things as simple as having someone to come in and do laundry and things like that, that would not subject you to injuring themselves and, you know, had patients that have broken a hip and trying to lean over and do something that they shouldn't be doing. So simple laundry services could prevent a catastrophic event in a, you know, in a patient's life. So it's really understanding what those physical capabilities are and making sure, again, partnering either with providers or vendors to be able to provide those in the home. Great. All great points. Edie Columbia, thanks so much for joining me. Really enjoyed it. Well, thank you, Diane. Really appreciate the time and the ability to speak to our patients and our providers. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast. For the latest in home care news, visit McKnight'sHomeCare.com.